Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. In Pennsylvania, the people who drove the revolution were not the established elite, as in other colonies. Quite the opposite. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chris Quaylo talking about founding father Timothy Matlack, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Chris Quaylo, and he'll be talking about Timothy Matlack, the good, the bad, and some of the really ugly Chris and I had a really good conversation about how you break down an individual's life, how you gather information on them, and in a lot of ways, what is our job as historians uh, in terms of labeling them as good or decent or moral people. Timothy Matlack came from a uh, very strong Quaker family, uh, very pronounced within his church. Uh, But Timothy Matlack also, you know, ran cockfighting rings. He took heat for that in his own time. And he's going to take heat for it now. Uh, That's all very, very negative points in his favor, right? Um, It's not going to help him. But, you know, Matlack wasn't given a pass in the 18th century, and he's certainly not given a pass now. He would profess his faith to be uh, something that was a guiding principle for him in his public life. But his enemies would remind him, hey, you're a slaver. Uh, you talk the talk, but do you really walk the walk? Man, the Quakers are great about that. Um, they talk about good deeds and they mean it. Not an easy bar to reach. But Timothy Matlack has an impressive history, nevertheless. As historians, you know, we talk about it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not my place to say he's a good person um, or a bad person. It's our place to say, hey, he was a person, and here's what he did. Chris Quaylo wrote a wonderful article. Please read it as a follow-up to this interview. Uh, He really did a great job. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Chris Quaylo. Chris Quaylo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brady. Tell us about your background. I grew up in New York City. My parents had a farm in Morristown, New Jersey near Philadelphia. And they were descendants of Quakers who arrived in the Delaware Valley in the 17th century. So there was always you know, a lot of tradition and history. By the time we came along, that farm was a suburbia. But in his living room, my grandfather had a tall clock, which was the first one made by George Hollingshead, who had a workshop in town in the early 1800s. As a kid, that clock kept me awake at night counting the spikes on the hour, especially Christmas Eve. 
but I was always fascinated by the history of it all. And uh, in case you're wondering about my last name, Coelho, it's actually Portuguese, but my father was from Argentina. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I was a kid during the bicentennial in 1976. And, of course, I remember the tall ships sailing up the Hudson River and the fireworks. In school, our teacher doubled down on the revolution and the war of independence. Paul Revere, Nathan Hale, Betsy Ross, one if by land, two if by sea. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country, the first American flag. The American story was ground into our psyche. And I was familiar with the name Matlack because we had an ancestor named William Matlack. And he was an indentured servant who helped build the first houses in Burlington, New Jersey. But I don't think I was aware of Timothy Matlack before the 2004 movie National Treasure. Nicholas Cage finds a riddle engraved on a pipe that mentions Mr. Matlack. That got me investigating, and I found that very little had been written about the scribe of the Declaration of Independence. A local historian had given a paper about him in 1910, and that was it. But that paper pointed to the amazing story of a forgotten revolutionary. Now, I'm someone that loves spending time in archives. Now, for me, it's the thrill of, of detective work. You never know what you're going to find. And I'll never forget being handed Benjamin Franklin's print shop account book. In that, Franklin recorded in advance orders for things like Four Riches Almanac. And one of his colleagues, Timothy's father, I also turned the pages of a copy of Common Sense, which was owned by Timothy Madlack himself. At home, I have a notebook that uh, was written by a young Quaker named Tamar Roberts. She started that in 1796, and she describes Philadelphia's yellow fever epidemic. Timothy Madlack lived through that. During that epidemic, everyone with the means left the city and moved to country houses. And I'm sure that that sounds familiar now. Talk about Timothy Matlack's early life. Give us some context. Yeah. Actually, when he was a very old man, someone asked, asked him about his health. And he replied, I scarcely know how I am, who I am, or where I am. I only know I am alive, and that's all. But he always remembered his childhood in Haddonfield, the riding to school on his grandfather's back, when the snow was deep, climbing an apple tree near the Quaker meeting house to get apples. Timothy Matlack rose to prominence from a very humble background. His father had failed as a farmer, as a shopkeeper, and as a brewer in that order. He once borrowed money from a slave named Primus. I saw the promissory note Primus signed with his mark. After their father's death, Timothy's younger brothers were admitted to a charity school as poor scholars. Uh, So what about Timothy? For one thing, he got a boost at a young age. He was eight years old when his family moved to Philadelphia. And who was the the family's new next-door neighbor? Benjamin Franklin himself. And Franklin became a kind of mentor to the young Matlack. And how did Timothy learn to write so beautifully? That was as a merchant apprentice. 
For seven years, his master kept him working endlessly, endless hours at his desk, writing out correspondence and contracts. And following that training, Benjamin Franklin hired him to transcribe a master's petition to the King of England. Matlack married the daughter of a Quaker minister and had five children. His youngest son died in a naval battle in the War of Independence. What first led Matlack into public life? Right. So following his apprenticeship, Timothy opened a mercantile. He sold goods he imported from England. But he found himself more interested in the camaraderie of horse racing and cockfighting than the price of linen in London. After his business failed, he was disowned by the Society of Friends, and he spent time in debtor's prison. But thanks to his exploits in sports, you know, especially a famous cockney against the New York aristocrat James Delancey, he became a local hero. He had a strong physical presence and a friendly, outgoing manner, and so he became a popular figure, especially among the lower and middle classes. He opened a brewery, and he bottled beer for sale, and that was located on 6th Street near the State House, which is now known as Independence Hall. And so by embracing tavern culture, he became a public man. And that led yeah, to his involvement in the revolution and uh, the War of Independence when that came along about 10 years later. How did Matlack come to join the Continental Congress? That seems like a big jump. Yeah, it's a big jump. But actually, uh, he uh, was initially a clerk working for the Congress. And in September 1774, the first, the first Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. And thanks to the good work he did for Franklin, Secretary Charles Thompson of Congress hired Matt Lack as a clerk. In October of 1774, Thompson assigned Matt Lack the job of preparing two copies of the delegate's respectful address to King George III. Matt Lack had one night to get this done before the last day of Congress. When the second Congress opened the following year, 1775, Matt Lack, he took an oath of secrecy as assistant to Secretary Thompson. But it was no secret who would be commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. In June, Matlack was given the job of writing out in beautiful script General George Washington's formal, formal commission as commander-in-chief. Now, 1776, the following year, was really an epic year for, for Matlack. And the first month, of that year, many thousands of colonists became convinced that the future of America was as an independent nation. This thanks to Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense. But the Pennsylvania Assembly was blocking a vote for independence in Congress. The leader of the Assembly, John Dickinson, had instructed the colonies' delegation to utterly reject any such proposition. Um, but for the, the majority of the population was in favor of independence. And so, and with the support of John Adams and others in Congress, Matt Lack and his fellow radicals used town meetings and committees to quash the old assembly. Thanks to this maneuver, Congress was able to vote unanimously in favor of independence on July 2nd, 1776. And two days later was when the members agreed to the final text of their declaration and ordered it proclaimed in all the colonies. Now this brings, uh, brings us to the other, the second article that was published recently 
in the journal. And that was about the first public reading of the declaration. When did that take place? Traditionally, that is said to have occurred on July 8, 1776. And that's actually reenacted every year in Philadelphia on July 8. But my article presents evidence that the first reading actually happened on July 4 itself, and that the speaker standing on the steps of Independence Hall was very possibly Timothy Matlack himself. That night, that night of July 4, Matlack was likely involved in proofing the first printed copy of the Declaration, which is known as, which is known as the Dunlap Broadside. And this, broad, uh, this broadsheet poster was distributed on July 5th. And if you happen to find one hidden in an old frame, you'll be able to buy your own country estate. Uh, later that month, Matlack prepared a formal copy of the Declaration by hand. This was the famous parchment Declaration of Independence signed by John Hancock and the rest of the delegates. It is America's best known, best known historical document. And the Harvard professor named Daniel Allen spoke of the elegance of Matlack's work in creating this finest rendering of the Declaration. He added capitalization, punctuation, and flourishes. And by so doing, Timothy Matlack actually helped write the Declaration. It was not until near the end of the war that Matlack was, in fact, named a delegate to Congress himself. And for a short time, he was a member of that same body. He had served initially as a clerk. Could you talk about his military service? Yeah, sure. So in January 1776, Matlack was elected colonel of the 5th Battalion of Riflemen. The Philadelphia militia actually missed the Battle of Trenton on December 26, 1776, because they were unable to cross the Delaware from their position downstream from Washington's force. The reason was the massive amount of ice in the river. But Colonel Matt and the rest of the militia joined the Continental Army at the standoff at Assumpting Creek, which was on January 2nd. And following the secret night march, the third Cornwallis force surprised the British the next day. Uh, the militia participated in the great victory at the Battle of Princeton. And the militia earned accolades for its unexpected performance in this battle. Matt, uh, Matt Lex said the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania militia enabled George Washington to strike this important blow. And Washington himself said the militia had earned great honor by serving with bravery in the cold of winter when his army was reduced to a handful of men and affairs were in a critical situation. The, the militia actually broke in the first action at Princeton, but the men reformed in the face of grape shot and pushed forward at the definitive moment in the battle. Now, how did the militia find, and find the courage to take on British redcoats and Hessian mercenaries? In fact, they were driven by a sheer rage. The men were furious about the atrocities they witnessed on the other side. And fueled by anger, they forgot their utter fear and ran headlong at the enemy with fixed bayonets. Uh, during, during the military campaign, Matlack was also serving on the Council of Safety, which was the acting executive branch of the state government. And after the success of the winter campaign, he was named Secretary of Pennsylvania's 
newly appointed Supreme Executive Council. Uh, from that point to the end of the war, he held that powerful office in Philadelphia for the state of Pennsylvania. What does he do after the war ends? In 1778, it was, um, the end of the war was still five years away, but Matlack was already complaining of exhaustion. He was 42 years old at the time, but his ultimate retirement from public office would not come for another 44 years when he was 86. Turning away from politics for a moment, I wanted to mention some of the pursuits Matt Lack enjoyed in his leisure, which had more time, of course, after the war. Uh, The revolution and the War of Independence took place during Philadelphia's Enlightenment, and this was a period of rapidly expanding knowledge through scientific studies. And one of the earliest notable events and here's a different subject. American dinosaur paleontology occurred on October 5th, 1787. Casper Wistar and Timothy Matlack prepared, a paper, prepared and presented a paper to the American Philosophical Society describing a large bone found near Woodbury Creek in New Jersey. Scientists now suspect this was a metatarsal from a duck-billed hadrosaur. Matlack enjoyed scientists scientific projects, science projects, and also agriculture. Matlack said Americans ate too much meat and not enough fruit. Americans, America's fields, he said, would one day be covered by fruit trees and vineyards. He planted his own orchard in Lancaster, and in 1807 sent Thomas Jefferson a shipment of peach trees, which the president forwarded onto Monticello. Matlack said these trees would produce the juiciest and best flavored of all the clingstone and peaches. He said it retains more of the peach flavor and brandy than any other. And as for the aforementioned vineyards, Matlack predicted that one day American wines would vie for the best the world can afford. Matlack, as mentioned, was a master brewer. His instructions would be appreciated by today's microbrewery. He wrote that a wart of malt and hops fermented at 65 degrees and separated from its yeast in due time, becomes spontaneously fine and even perfectly bright, soft and free from bitterness. Now, speaking of red meat, Timothy's friend, Jacob Hilfsheimer, actually raised prized steers, and Matt Lack always presided at the slaughterhouse when these large animals were weighed. After one of these patriotic occasions, the Hilfsheimers met Timothy and his wife, Nellie, at Mullins, Jacob said he enjoyed a beefsteak off my big steer, Roger. Timothy gave a toast saying, may the friends of America be fed with such beef, and may your enemies long for it and be disappointed. During the early Republic years of our country, very heated political debates as we know, uh, Matlack remains politically active. Where does he fall politically in the 1790s? Yeah, it's important, I mean, going back to 1776, uh, before we get to that period, that Matlack helped write Pennsylvania's ultra-democratic constitution. He and his radical associates believed strongly in political equality and majority rule. To protect the welfare and safety of the inhabitants, they said, a just, permanent, proper government must be derived from and founded on the authority of the people only. Taking their inspiration from Thomas Paine, the radicals installed a unicameral legislature. John Adams, who opposed this idea, complained that Matlack, Cannon, 
and pain had influence enough to get their democratical plans adopted in Pennsylvania. Georgia and Vermont, he said, copied the Pennsylvania Constitution. In 1780, Matt passed the first abolition law in the Western Hemisphere. He had plenty of role models in his background to inspire him. His first cousin was the Quaker abolitionist John Woolman. His school teacher was the abolitionist Anthony Benezit. The new law said the children of the current slaves would take turns as indentured servants, and that their children, the grandchildren of slaves, would be born free. Now we get to the period you're asking about, and 20 years later, Matlack was deeply involved in the Revolution of 1800 and Thomas Jefferson's ascension to, to the presidency. In defeating the Federalists, Matlack and Pennsylvania's Democratic Republicans considered their state the keystone in the Democratic arch. Matlack's radicals of 1776 and the Democratic Republicans who followed sowed the seeds of the egalitarian American society of the early 19th century. Except they took the reigning the aristocracy, were the first in the continuing fight for equality in America. You say that Matlack was, quote, scrubbed from history. It was a quote from another historian in your article. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, as we've seen during the Revolutionary War, Timothy Matlack was a constant force in, in Pennsylvania. His unflagging dedication to the American cause and the admiration and respect of such men as Thomas Jefferson and Richard Henry Lee. But as this adversary predicted, he wasn't in fact scrubbed from history. And Matlack suffered historically from a, from a lack of a definitive identity. Even in, in his own time, he was something of an enigma. After his death, his detractors carried forward the negative persona constructed by his contemporary enemies. They never forgave his infamous cockfight or his stint in debtor's prison. They claimed he was a violent man. But in fact, in private life, Matlag was a loving father and a compassionate friend. His friends always appreciated the gentleness of his spirit. His friend Jacob Hiltzheimer wrote that after the death of his wife, Mr. Timothy Matlag stayed with me from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening, and his conversation was a great support to me. And during long trips to Savannah, Georgia in 1786, Timothy Matlag wrote to his son-in-law and asked him to make my family as happy as he can and to divide a large share of, of the tender affection among them from a father who longs earnestly to be with him again. But he was forgotten. Uh, for the wrong reasons. Another, another is that uh, what happened institutionally. The historian Gary Nash writes that in the 19th century, the Philadelphia radicals were ignored by Philadelphia's archivists and librarians. And the, the papers of the radicals were lost and never preserved, and the officers of the collecting institutions were suspicious of ordinary people elected to high places. The conservative establishment disapproved of the radicals' desire for a thorough reformation of American society in the interest of greater equality. Uh, but in 1821, you know, in, uh, in his old age, Matt Lack was honored to, for, uh, for the 45th anniversary of independence at a celebratory gathering. And he read the Declaration of Independence to all in attendance. He was honored 
by a visit from the Marquis de Lafayette in 1824. Lafayette may have shown him a copy of the stone engraving of the declaration, which had just been issued. Matlack lived to see the 50th anniversary of the declaration in the United States of America. He outlived all but one signer, Charles Carroll of Maryland. Matlack was buried in Philadelphia, but that graveyard in its entirety was, was to Audubon, Pennsylvania. His grave can be found there next to a baseball field. There is a, there is a, a historical marker out on the road. How does this article help us to understand the Revolutionary Era better? Yeah. Well, in five years, we will be celebrating our 250th Independence Day. It's America's semi-quincentennial. And this is an opportunity to update our narrative of the Revolutionary Era. In Pennsylvania, the people who drove the revolution were not the established elite, as in other colonies. Quite the opposite. Led by radicals, including Timothy Matlin, the lower sort, forced the elite class to accept independence. As we have said, it was thanks to the pressure the people applied in the host colony that Congress was able to adopt the Declaration of Independence unanimously. The Pennsylvania radicals were also able to install their constitution in 1776. The authors of this frame wanted to create a world in which people with less property did not have to live their lives under a prejudicial dominance. The Constitution brought into power a class of people hitherto denied political privileges. This was done by granting voting rights to expand the suffrage. So Matlack and his fellow radicals deserve praise for framing his Constitution anchored in the spirit of 18th century Enlightenment and the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The work done by Matlack and his fellow Pennsylvania radicals was the first step in the fight for equality in America. Philadelphians should be proud of Timothy Matlack, who was one of their own, and not let him be forgotten. They should embrace this forgotten son and honor him in 2026. Chris Guelo, thanks again. Thanks, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>